When we went to the police station, I went in the white entrance and he had to wait and go in the black entrance, two separate entrances. And the police officer said to me, you tell me whatever you like and that's what will be what happened. And I decided I couldn't live in a society where I couldn't take the consequences of my actions. Diana Aviv grew up a Jewish girl in apartheid South Africa. What she witnessed as a child drove her to spend her life helping people. Today she's CEO of Feeding America, the third largest charity in America by donation value, at more than $2 billion. And her journey to that position? It's a study in how leading with your emotions can bring world-changing results. Rich ideas and powerful people, I'm John Fort and this is Fort Knox. Here's Diana Aviv. Feeding America is only 36 years old. It's not very old. And it started with a bunch of food banks who were working in local communities across the United States, recognizing that they needed to have some national organization that connected them to each other. Now why? What was the problem that they needed to solve? Because sometimes when you solve a problem in one local community, why do you have to reinvent everything in another one when you can learn from them? Maybe they did it. Maybe they figured out how to refrigerate food for longer or how to pass it out. Or what were they doing with deliveries that they were getting at funny hours of the night and mm. those sorts of things. So maybe they could learn from one another. Also, there was a sense that not just best practices, but maybe they could aggregate in some kind of way. What if one local food bank got too much of one product and they couldn't use it? Maybe mm. another one could use it. So it would be just helpful to mix that up and so on. Right. So that's how it started, but it's been a long way since then. And now Feeding America does many more things than um, serve also as the link to now 200 food banks across the United States, serving every single county. Anybody tells you, I know that uh, in Englewood Cliffs, in some of the wealthiest suburbs, Alpine, New Jersey, the wealthiest suburbs in New Jersey and New York, mm -hmm. you would think that there are very few poor people. Not so. There isn't a county in the United States that doesn't have uh, people facing hunger. And so our food banks, there are 200 of them, they work with 61,000 nonprofits, soup kitchens, pantries, yeah, mom and pop churches, you know, all sorts of local groups, charities, 501c3 charitable organizations that actually distribute the food. So okay, so what is, I mean, I'm, I'm going to come at this from a perspective of total ignorance about the logistics of this. What is a food bank that then works with all of these different charities? Is it like uh, an Amazon distribution center that's sort of the, the local hub where all the food comes in and then goes out? In some ways, you could say it looks like an Amazon distribution center, but since I haven't been to that, and I have been to Costco, <laughs> I'll tell you it looks like a Costco. Wow. So it's a huge warehouse, huge. In some t communities where they don't have very much, it would be smaller. Uh, but I went to the one in Houston, which is probably the largest food bank in the world, and it's much bigger than the Macy's flagship store in Manhattan. It's massive. And they have rows and rows and rows of shelves, and on that they put um, canned goods that are donated, and they have refrigerated space and freezer space. And then it's a very sophisticated operation with trucks coming in, delivering goods, and then um, items going out. Where does this food come from? From lots of different places, but substantially donated from corporations. Uh, we have a great relationship with Walmart, with, with uh, Kroger's, with Albertsons, with... Uh, uh, with many, with um, General Mills. So many of the corporations, food corporations, have been donating for years. And the kind of food that they've donated, both at the local level and at the national level, sometimes they have more than what they need of something. They estimate it wrong. Sometimes the labeling's wrong. In the case of produce, um, thank heaven for ugly fruit <laughs> and veg. Um, please don't start eating ugly fruit and veg. We need it for people in need. So this uh, is perfectly fresh fruit and vegetables that just has some blemish on it where people who are shopping in the store might pass over it. And so that perfectly good, fresh fruit or vegetable then goes to the food bank. Now that's our best hope. Okay. All too often we get the fruit and veg that has got about a day left. Mm. And our job is to capture that food and very quickly turn it around and distribute it. So we kind of like Ginger Rogers to Fred Astaire, where we have to do everything that Fred Astaire does, but backwards and heels on, because we have to capture the food that's got a limited shelf life, bring it in, distribute it, and get it to people in need. And many times people spread all over. 
in states, very big states like uh, like Wyoming, like the Dakotas and so on, Texas, uh, those trucks have to travel far and wide to get to places where the people are. In city centers, it's a little bit easier from that point of view. So that's, that sounds like a huge logistical undertaking, 200 food banks, did you say 61,000 yep. different organizations that are being fed uh, uh, product, food, from those banks. How many meals are we talking about? I, I don't know how you calculate it, annually, daily, weekly? Well, last year, last fiscal year, we served 46 million people, 4 hmm. billion meals. And that's all, all in the U.S.? All in the U.S., and um, with 2 million volunteers helping as well. So that's more than 10% of the population of the U.S.? More than 10% of the population and bigger than the entire country of Canada, the entire population, much bigger than Australia. If we were looking on a world map of populations, we would be the 32nd largest country. And this is in a country that throws away, wastes 40% of the food that it produces. 40%. We could feed all of America and then some, probably the whole world at the moment, and we don't. A lot of it goes to waste, and a lot of it, people are standing on lines for hours and hours to get a measly meal, mm. or we hope a protein-rich, healthy meal. So th this is an organization that you run, and you um, have a deep background in uh, efficiently and properly running organizations. So I got to ask, how do you measure um, the effectiveness and efficiency of Feeding America in terms of uh, minimizing overhead, how much of the donation dollars that, that come in actually ends up benefiting the people uh, who you serve? Well, we say that a dollar is able to produce 11 meals, but that's because of all kinds of logistics and ways in which we do that. But l let me say this to you, John that when it comes to the charitable sector and people working in this space, our end result is only one question, and that is that of people facing hunger, did they get to eat? Mm. And did they get to eat not just once in a day? When a child leaves school in summer holidays we, or winter holidays as we're entering now, we don't want to be in a position that because school breakfasts and school lunches aren't being made available to them, that they're only eating one meal a day mm. in the evenings when their parents come home from work and so on. So our bottom line question is, how many people are we serving? And are we serving them nutritious food and in a way that is available to them when they need it and where they need it? Those are the big questions. Of course, we have to be efficient and effective to do that. If we don't spend all of our time thinking about how to harness the food from one source, some of the food, especially the healthy nutritional food, has a limited shelf life, so moving it very fast and distribu distributing it, we're not fulfilling our mission. That's a big and, mission. And the consequences are not like, yikes, we failed, let's try again. It's, yikes, somebody didn't eat today. Are there particular challenges in the holiday season, in this period approaching Christmas, Hanukkah, etc., and and New Year's Day? It's a time when probably more people than usual think about volunteering in soup kitchens, which are some of your, I don't know if you think of them as customers, but part of your distribution network. It's a time when there are a lot of hungry people, as there are uh, all, all year round, and also a time when people are looking to make donations. What does this time of year mean for you? So on the donation front, it's yes, yes, please, and even more. <laughs> and what how, you much of your, how much of your budget comes in? say, uh, in, in November and December? Well, um, from individual donations, a large number. But individual donations are not the largest part of our budget. Really? The biggest part of our budget comes from corporations. Okay. So in the case of individual donations, yes, please, and then some. And if it's tax incentives that, in, that encourage you, because by the end of December you want to get your tax deductions in and all the rest of it, go for it. Let's do that. But the best way in which you can give a gift is also to bank your volunteer time. So if, in fact, the food banks are full and the soup kitchens are full with volunteers, make a promise that in February and March, people are going to be just as hungry as they were in December, so that they might get a piece of roast turkey now, they might get some ham now, they might get eggs now, but don't they also need some of that also in February and March? So make a promise for the coming year, but certainly make your gift now. Are there real volunteer shortages in, say, February and March, um, whereas there might not be in 
November, December? It's, un it's very uneven. Around the high holidays, um, for example, um, Thanksgiving, there's also uh, ample volunteers, but there are other times of year where there's a shortage. Sometimes, w especially in the summer months, we might get loads of produce that need to be offloaded now mm -hmm. and distributed now. And there aren't always um, enough volunteers to do that. So it's not totally even. When you're working with volunteers, and we're very grateful for all the volunteers that do the work, uh, we don't always manage how it is. I'm thinking about myself when I was running an organization, and we always volunteered every year on our volunteer day at the food bank or one of the soup kitchens. And we said to them, no, we want Friday from 9 to 12. And that's what suits us. And if the agency wasn't willing to accept that, then we would just go to another agency. So the way in which nonprofits adapt is to lean into the corporation or the business and say, uh, we will accommodate whatever you need because we need that. It's not often that a corporation will say to us or a business will say to us, when do you need it most? And let's organize our staff around that. Huh. So I think partly we now need to educate a little around that. How much would it help if more companies and individuals did do that, figure out when you need the help most? And, and then, I mean, is it a matter of food gets wasted at times because there's no one to offload it? What are the consequences? I think some of that happens, but our teams are pretty efficient and they've figured out how to do some of that. Sometimes what they do is they don't accept the food if they can't, if they can't absorb it and then redistribute it. So at the front end is where the question is where that opportunity is. So there are lots of ways to solve that problem. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was in um, uh, Reno, uh, Nevada, not too long ago, and the executive of the food bank there told me that within a period of about 10 days, she got three semis of bananas. So the first one, she got all the staff to distribute right. and was thrilled. I could make banana bread with it. You can <laughs> eat bananas up the wazoo. By the, by the third semi of bananas, she couldn't accept it anymore. And that happens from time to time. Um, I just learned recently that Tennessee is the, one of the largest producers of tomatoes. So they've got tons of tomatoes in the summer uh -huh. and then nothing in the winter. The way they decided to solve the problem was to figure out how to cook tomatoes and seal them, take out all the air, and then give it a shelf life of 18 months. And they've done that. Oh, wow. Another way we tried to solve that problem is we convened a produce summit earlier in the year and we brought together all of the food banks and those people interested in produce, and they came to the conclusion that what we need are mixing centers. So we have three pilots in three different parts of the country right now, where instead of the, those semis going to the individual food bank that can't absorb all of that particular product, mm -hmm. it now goes to the mixing centers, and then the food banks can go there and get a mix of some potatoes, some rice, you know, whatever, some peas, tomatoes, some tomatoes, bananas. <laughs> right. And, and that way, then, um, we solved that problem that way. And the beauty of this, John, is that in different parts of the country, people are solving the problem in different kinds of ways. And then part of the role of the national organization, which it always was, coming back to your first question, is to share those best practices and then to see which of these we can scale where it makes sense to scale it. Wow. How, how many people in your organization nationally? Um, staff, we have about 260. It's not, it's, it's not very big for such a large national organization. The overall budget of the national organization, hold your breath, although working in business, it wouldn't be a big surprise, is just over 2.2 billion. 2.2 billion with a B? Yes, but that includes non-cash contributions. Okay. So if you look at the cash contributions, it's more in round about 120-ish million, 124, 23, 24 million that we raise every year. And then of that, we give, last year we gave away in grants to local food banks $50 million. So sometimes oh. a corporation will come to us and say to us, look, we want to serve the Northeastern Seaboard, but we don't want to go food bank by food bank. It's too much for us. Will you be willing to do that? And we say, sure, we'll do it. And so they give us the money and then we regrant it per the requirements or the requests of that national organization, that company. Sometimes we'll say back to the company, that's great, but just want you to know that where you're giving, they're doing just fine. Would you consider something else? Same in the same region, but something else. Because of course, local food banks would much rather have cash that's not limited to a particular area, but operating money so that they can put the money where they need it. But nevertheless, we aggregate the money and then distribute it. Diana, tell well. me about you. What's your background? How did you end up in this line of work? Gosh, 
It's a long story. <laughs> um, I grew up in South Africa. You can hear I have an accent. And I came to the United States to, I went to graduate school here. But I... So in your, in your 20s? Yes, but as a child, um, I grew up in apartheid South Africa, mm. a white child in, in apartheid South Africa. And I remember when I was just a little girl of about 11, my parents s sent us to a youth leadership organization. I don't think they had any idea of the kind of organization they sent us to. And this organization took us to Soweto, which mm. is the largest black town um, outside of Johannesburg because of apartheid at the two separate towns. And um, I saw on that trip people living in a, um, a room that wasn't more than six by eight or little less than that. And there were 17 people living in that room. And they had no hot and cold running water, no electricity, and, and open sewers outside. And it was just nothing like in my middle-class background that I've You seen. were how Eleven. old? What impact did that have on you? Profound. I came home, and I told my parents what I saw, and they didn't believe me because the newspapers were censored. And really? I got angry. And I promised myself at age 11 that I was going to work to fix the world and that I was going to fix society. And then uh, a little later on, when I was, um, and I did, I got involved in the youth organization and we, I read everything I could about it. I knew more about apartheid than, <laughs> than you know, lots of people and so on. And when I was about... Um, what year is it around? Um, gosh, I don't remember. It was, in, it was in the 1960s. Okay. Um, and then when I um, graduated, which was in, so now we're talking about 1969, 1970, I had just gotten my driver's license, and I was 18, and um, I, was, uh, I had been driving for three months, so I was a real know-it-all. <laughs> and we stopped at a traffic light, and the person in front of me in the car didn't go forward. So I pulled out to overtake the car in the middle of the, the intersection. And just then, there was a fellow on a, um, on a bicycle, a, a, um, a motorcycle, uh, who was working for a drugstore, and he was coming up, and as I pulled out, I hit him, and mm. he went into the air and did somersaults and crashed to the, to the ground. Oh, and I was very upset and knew it was 100% my fault, and I rushed over to ask him if I could help him. And all of the people around, it was a white area, came up to me and said to me, don't worry, we'll tell the police that he was drunk. And mm. um, when we went to... And the motorcyclist was black. And he was black. And when I went to him, his pants were, his trousers were torn. And he kept saying, these cost me the equivalent of about $10. And I don't have the money. And I said, I'll give you the money. And I was just mortified by the whole experience. Mm. When we went to the police station, I went in the white entrance. And he had to wait and go in the black entrance, two separate entrances. And the police officer said to me, you tell me whatever you like, and that's what will be what happened. And I decided I couldn't live in a society where I couldn't take the consequences of my actions, which was to get in trouble as a result of what I'd done. Mm. I was responsible for it, and all because of the color of my skin, that this was as contaminating to me as it was. Just the consequences were easier for me, but they weren't, because how could I live with myself? Right. And I decided then that I had to leave. But I also knew that I needed... And it re excuse me, it reaffirmed, I'm getting emotional because mm. it upsets me still to this day. It reaffirmed to me how it's impossible to live in an unequal society, even if you're the privileged person, because you're as much contaminated by the experience as the victim of that terrible regime. So I decided that I had to leave. So what did you tell the police officer and what happened to the man's exactly pants? What happened. Okay. Exactly what happened. And then I asked my parents, if um, my parents said that they would pay and I said, no, I have to pay my pocket money. This is, this is mine. Mm -hmm. And we went to visit him at the um, pharmacy and we met with the pharmacist and, you know, I felt I had to own this for myself. And so um, I never got charged with anything, but we bought him some pants and we asked if he was okay. I don't know if he ever was okay. Because in that kind of situation, even when you're a nice liberal, <laughs> you can only do so much and you still don't ever know. I right. didn't visit him in his home. Now, in retrospect, I wish I would have done that too. But that also steered my future. So you decided you had to leave. Where did you go? 
So I came to America, <laughs> and I'm really an accidental immigrant. I had no plans to live in America. At the time, I wanted to live in maybe, I thought I needed to live in an English-speaking country because that's my language. And so I thought Canada, they've, they're pretty good to their citizens. <laughs> Australia's not too bad to their citizens. Um, um, United Kingdom felt a little bit about the past. And the United States, it just didn't occur to me because I thought there was, there, there was too much inequality here as well. But um, I joined my ex-husband when I came to the United States. And um, his father, his parents were very involved in anti-apartheid issues. His father helped... Yeah found lawyers for human rights in South Africa, graduated law school with Nelson Mandela, wow. um, and was deeply involved in the movement, as mm -hmm. was I with them. And um, I joined him, and then after about three months, I realized that I made a mistake, and I was pretty young, but I was too embarrassed to go home, because it would mean admitting to my parents that I made a mistake. And what mistake did you make? that I shouldn't have left South Africa yet to join an ex-husband who, from whom I was divorced. I should have finished my studies and continued my work in South Africa. Oh, so he was your so ex-husband at the time. I thought you were saying that you were married. I had and, you, and gotten divorced. Oh, but, but hadn't divorced yet. So you, you had married, gotten divorced, but came to America to join him. Yes. Wow, okay. Yes. And so you realized three months in yeah. that this had been a mistake. Yeah. And then you... I was living in New York City. Okay. I was going to Columbia University. And I knew that he had to go. And I had to finish my studies. And I didn't have a work visa because I was an immigrant. I mean, I was a student. Mm. And so and I knew that my father wouldn't pay for everything because he would say, just come home. Why should I pay for you? <laughs> so I went to the university and begged them. And they gave me a job at the School of Library Science. And I you know, did stuff on campus that gave me enough. I, I just realized in retrospect that that was the only experience I had with hunger because for probably two years I ate pizza once a day because it was the most filling thing I could have and it was one slice because I just didn't have any money. Hmm. But I was too proud to go home. So I did that and then decided that I needed to stay here for a while. And decided my that work. you needed to stay here but because... John, because I couldn't go to a country that had um, treated people like that and I believed at that time mm that um, apartheid wouldn't change, not in my lifetime. When I was in college in South Africa, before I joined my ex-husband, um, I was a social work student, and one of the reasons I went to social work school was because I wanted to learn, um, I, that was the way I thought I could get involved in um, the, the system in South Africa, right. legally, as part of my work. And one What time, did you want to learn exactly? I wanted to work in townships, in black townships, and I wanted to help poor people. And I wanted to be allowed to be there, and I wanted to work with poor families who were at risk and in need. And social work school would give you the credentials you needed in order to get there, or uh, was it going to teach you something practical that you needed to know? No, it was none of those. Yes, yes to all of that and none of that. <laughs> what it really was going to do is give me a work permit to work in black townships, uh. because that I couldn't have done without it. I would have gotten a job working in one of those, uh, the, in Tokozweni Children's Home, which is where I went, and places like that, and nobody could stop me from doing that. Mm. So that was really why, and then I could get involved that way. Um, but um, as part of my school training, I'll never forget this. We would go and visit um, facilities. We would learn about mm, different forms of social work. And one time they took us to Pretoria Central Prison mm. to look at the Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Center at the prison. And um, at the time, as we were looking at this, we saw a bunch of prisoners walk by in the distance. And I recognized one of those guys, and he was one of the guys who was my classmate who was involved in the anti-apartheid movement mm. who had disappeared, and we never knew where he was. And I saw him there, wow. and I fainted at the time. And it was a very, because I was just so mortified and petrified, and I was so naive. I, I just didn't understand any of this, and I didn't have people around me who could really support me. And um, I pretended I was sick, but I knew why I had fainted, because I just didn't know how to cope with that. And that told me as well that if you're involved in anti-apartheid activities in South Africa and continued, chances were you were going to be picked up and you were going to be put away and so on. So you either had to flee and work abroad or, or stay. So when... So how did that affect your plans? That it confirmed to me that I had to leave and that I had to go somewhere else. Mm. But I also wanted to go to a society where I could build a life because I thought that since white had been so oppressive 
to black people in South Africa that there would be no role for whites in South Africa going forward. Who knew <laughs> Nelson Mandela would be released? Who knew that he would forgive his, you know, his oppressors? Who knew any of that? We didn't know that. There was no precedent for it. There was no precedent for it. And so I thought this is my fate, that my country, my home, is not mine because of what white people have done and that I have to find a home somewhere else. And so when I came to America, I started getting involved in the anti-apartheid movement from here. Mm. And um, when I got out of school, at some point I got involved in national public policy work for these reasons, and I was given the portfolio of apartheid, which I thought was very funny. They thought <laughs> if she's South African, she must know about it. Well, I didn't know all the official stuff, but I learned it. And it was uh, with the organized Jewish community. And um, I organized um, political trips to South Africa because I got involved in the sanctions movement and got them to, um, I wanted the community to take a position supporting sanctions. So is this the 80s now? That was in the 80s. Yeah. And, um, and my ex-in-laws, who I described, he, found, he helped found lawyers for human rights. She got Soweto electrified and hot and cold running water Soweto, very involved in the anti-apartheid movement. So um, just to fast forward, uh, so I was very involved in that. When Nelson Mandela was released um, from prison, he invited uh, the anti-apartheid movements from around the world to come. And I, have, I don't remember how I got onto the list of 15 Americans Just who went 15. back. And I went on that trip back there. And um, it, it was just an absolutely extraordinary experience to be there. I remember when the People's Republic of China's, you know, tiny little woman, probably about 4 foot 11, stood up and she said, I represent 2.1 billion people <laughs> from China. You know, it was just, it was amazing experience to be there with him. And then I knew that he was, that David Dinkins was mayor of New York City at the time and that he was going to do a ticket tape parade for the first time that Nelson Mandela was going to be um, coming to the United States. Right. And I was a mid-level staffer at a Jewish organization doing um, uh, public policy issues in, in, on, on poverty and hunger, and all, all those kinds of issues, uh, social justice-related issues, and apartheid. And I heard that because Nelson Mandela, when he got out of prison, the first among the people who hugged him were Yasser Arafat, Fidel Castro, and Muammar Gaddafi, that on the front pages of the New York Times were these pictures of Mandela and the ANC being hugged by those three, uh, and the ANC had been seen as a communist organization. Right. There was a rabbi in Riverdale, New York, who said, by the name of Rabbi Avi Weiss, who said that he was going to lead a protest down Fifth Avenue as the ticker tape parade was happening, and I knew what that meant. It also sent chills down my spine because of the history of the Jewish people and the Holocaust and all of that, and also how actively they'd been involved in the anti-apartheid activities in South Africa. And so I you say you knew what it meant. What, what did that mean to you? It meant that if Avi Weiss did that, that the relationship between African Americans and Jews would probably be um, destroyed for 25 years. Mm. And Jews who had marched in the civil rights movement and all of that it would have been for naught, that it would have been the most serious rupture. And Nelson Mandela was already seen as somebody who was larger than life, already, you know, sure. even more so later on. But so I knew that this was a problem. And here I was, a middle-level middle level staffer, thinking, I have to do something about this. And I remember I had an apartment in Manhattan, and I was, it was 11.30 at night, and I didn't know what to do. And I called Roger Wilkins, who was hmm. the overall... Um, director of the um, movement to bring Mandela to the United States. Sure. And I left him a voicemail message. And I said, Mr. Wilkins, you don't know me. I'm Diana Aviv. I work at this organization. And I want you to know that Rabbi Weiss is planning to do this. And um, I think I can fix this. Um, I know how to do that. Did so, you? Well, let me tell you what I did. <laughs> <laughs> you got to wait. I'm telling you a story. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, he called me back at about one in the morning, and I was, you know, on the edge of my bed. And he said, he got it. He knew that this was not a good thing. And he said, what can you do? I said, if you can get Nelson Mandela to meet, I can get the head of the Anti-Defamation League, then the American Jewish Congress and the American Jewish Committee to meet with him. And we can sort this out. He said, you can do that? I said, yes, I can do that. 
I had no idea how I was going to do that. See, that's what I was asking is if well, you knew how you, you were going to do it. I wasn't going to tell you that. <laughs> but yes, I had an idea. Now, they were, those three organizations were members of the organization because mine was an umbrella organization. Mm -hmm. And they were members. And I then went to meet Abe Foxman. Uh, and he called me back and he said, you can do that, I'll deliver Nelson Mandela to you. But not in the United States, we'll do it in Geneva. So I... Huh. Why in Geneva? Because it had to be before he came. Right. So that it was set, settled. So I then went, asked Abe Foxman if he would see me. And because they were a member, and I said it was about Nelson Mandela. And I knew if I used his name, he'd see me. Because otherwise, why would he see me? He'd see my boss. <laughs> And I walked in, and I sat down, and Abe Foxman was not known to be a softie at all. <laughs> he was known to be pretty tough on a lot of things. Sure. And I walked in, and I think I burst into tears to begin with, to say how upset I was. I mean, that's not why. I was just so emotional about this. And I described um, what I thought was going to happen and, and the consequences. And he said to me, Diana, I want you to answer just one question for me. And I said, what's that? He said, is Nelson Mandela a good person? I said, good person? Blah, 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 blah. And I, you know, 25 different ways I told him, including that his private physician was Jewish, that my father-in-law um, was um, practiced law with him, got him the right to practice law in Johannesburg, and so on and so on and so on, all of these different things. He said, I'll go. I'll go mm. to Geneva. And I knew if Abe Foxman went, the other two would go. That I knew. That much, even then, I knew as a mid-level staffer, and they did go, and they met with Mandela in in Geneva, and they were came you there, back. or did no, you just no, have no, to no. wait? I and was hear. just a mid-level staffer. Well, just a mid-level staffer, just setting mid up some pretty big things. And when um, when I um, when they came back, as they were getting off the plane, this was covered by the media. They asked Abe Foxman, "What do you think?" And he said, "He's a brother of mine. Nelson Mandela is my brother," and that caused Avi Was, Rabbi Avi Was, to cancel his march, and that set things straight. So that was just um, an opportunity to take everything that I knew about life and what I'd learned and use it in a way. And it also taught me that you don't have to be the head of the organization. You don't have to be the most powerful person. You have to have the passion and the commitment and a sense of purpose of what's right, mm. and then use everything in service of that opportunity, and you can make it happen. You know what else strikes me about what you did in that situation was that you didn't check your emotions at the door. A lot of times we think or we're told that in order to do big things in the world, in order to make a difference, you can't cry in the meeting with Abe Foxman, right? But you can Sometimes you just don't have a choice. It's not that you, you know, maybe, but even when I get older, I'm choked up a little bit now. Some things are more important than oneself, and that what's driving me is what I was taught as a child about decency and justice and right, and then when the time comes and the opportunities in front of me, how can I step aside? I mean, how can I live with myself? But I didn't ask myself those questions. To me, it was very clear. That system was wrong. It was bad. It, it prevented me from living in my own home country. How did I know he'd be released? Maybe I would never have left. But I did, and I could do this, and at least I could add a little something in this big moment. I then had some funny experiences with Mr. Mandela afterwards, with Madiba. So the first time I met him was at that time. Yeah. And um, I went up and I said, you know, I want you to, um, I'm Jules Brody's daughter-in-law and Selma Brody. And Selma, um, the wife, had um, got Soweto electrified and hot and cold running and, and really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And it ran on the opposition ticket and so on. Did he know about your role in that meeting he had? I didn't tell him. No. I was just tongue-tied. I was tongue -tied. By the way, he's very cute as well. Besides everything else, he was really cute. And um, I, so all I could, I could barely get out that I was um, the Brody's um, daughter-in-law. I saw him a couple of weeks later, and I was sure after 10,000 people he wouldn't remember me. So I introduced myself the same way the second time. He said to me, you told me that last time. Tell me something else. <laughs> he was just such a terrific, wonderful person. Wow. And so... The background in South Africa, the work on apartheid, somewhere along there, your vision gets even broader. 
in how you want to have an impact on the world. What path leads you from there to Feeding America? You know, um, when you're an immigrant, even if you're an immigrant who knows the English language and who comes from a background that's middle class, my dad did pay for my college tuition, so I wasn't indebted. I was chubby and I had to lose some weight after all those pizzas, but I wasn't... <laughs> but I it was just one slice a day. Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> every day, every day, can, the pounds can add on. And okay. then you go to events and... <laughs> like that. Um, and um, I didn't know how to manage America. I didn't know how to make my way here. The very first job I ever got was through the New York Times because I didn't know that I could go to the teachers and hmm. that I didn't have friends and family to say, do you know anybody? Can you call anybody? So the classified section of the New York Times. The classified section of the New York Times was how I got a job. How else would I get a job? I didn't know anybody. Right. And so what I, my aspirations for what I wanted to do and what was available to me were very different. And so when I started, I started at a community mental health center. I was a psychiatric social worker. I, I did know that piece. And then an opportunity arose uh, for me to work on domestic violence. And mm. again, I didn't know that much about it, but um, th it was just starting. The field was new. And so I went to be a director of a program for battered women and their families. And we moved it from being just a shelter for battered women, but also to create a counseling program for men. Because we realized, we did some... For men. I had a friend uh, who was at Columbia University and I asked her to come in and she showed us that over 90% of the women, when they left the shelter, over 90% of them went back to the abuser. And when I saw that, I thought, well, then, if that's true, and that's how it is, then we need to work with the men to stop them from abusing the women. Because we're not going to be able to change their behavior. Maybe we can change this dynamic. Did the men want counseling? Um, yes, but this is how they wanted counseling. We worked with the women to go to court and to charge them so that some of them had court-appointed ah. um, counseling. In other instances, we said to the women, don't stay in the shelter. They'll be very needy. We'll reach out to them. If they agree to counseling, then you get back together because we knew they were going to go anyway. So we used the legal system, um, um, threats, deprivation, you know, wanting to sure. see the spouse, guilt, all of those kinds of things. And so in those instances, some of that worked. How did you know to do work. that? I don't know. It just, I don't know. It just, it, it just seemed to make sense to me at the time. Was that, it was partly your idea? It was all my idea. All your idea. This was, this was truly charter time. There was, yeah. the, the only programs that existed were shelters for battered women. I was a therapist. I'd, I knew that people have emotions, that they, that they can't control their emotions, that, that um, people want relationships. I'll, I'll tell you one that really taught me this more than anything. So, um, but it, it, it was from the experience that I learned this. There was one woman who was actually earning quite a lot of money, even in those days. Mm. She was earning over $250,000, a single mother, and she had two kids. Wow. And that was a long time ago, 20 years ago. So sure. it was, nobody could say she wasn't independent. And she had a boyfriend, and the police called me and said, you need to come and see this woman. And I said, why is that? I'll come, but why? And they said, because her son's going to be um, charged with attempted murder unless she charges the boyfriend. So I'll go in to see her, and here was the story. She, um, uh, she was at home, and the boyfriend showed up, and the 16-year-old son was off with friends, and the 10-year-old was at home with her. Mm -hmm. And the boyfriend was crazy jealous and accused her of being out with men, and um, took a knife and started slashing her clothing. Oh, my goodness. And the little boy, 10-year-old, was terrified, and he said to her, the, the boyfriend, crazy, said to her, and I'm going to slash you as soon as I finish slashing the, the clothing. Little boy called his brother and said, Lenny's over, and Mommy's going to, you know, and all of that. And the 16-year-old the, the, um, somehow got access to a sort-of shotgun and took the shotgun back to the apartment and pointed it at Lenny and said, leave my mother alone. And Lenny started snarling and saying terrible things to him and accusing him of being whatever, just language we don't say. Yeah. And um, started advancing towards him. And the kid shot Lenny. The bullet missed him, hit a pillar, ricocheted, on, through the pillar back into his mother's 
skull and through her brain. And when I saw in hospital, she had a bullet in her brain. Oh, my goodness. And he was being charged with attempted murder. So if she didn't charge Lenny with abuse, and the police called us, and when I met her, um, she was about to go in for, for surgery, and she still had the bullet lodged in her brain. And I sat down with her, I asked everybody to leave, and I said to her, help me understand, she told me the story, help me understand why he is so important to you, because clearly he means a lot to you. Instead of the judgments about how can you do this, this is your child and all the rest of it, she knew that. So mm. why is it that even in the face of that, she couldn't let go? And she said a very interesting thing to me. She said, you know, right now you see him at his worst, but you don't see him all the times he's loving to me. Huh. And there's nobody in the world who helps me the way that he does. And he's emotionally supportive. So I put up with the abuse because of what else I get from him. Even and after all that? Even after all that. And so that's when I said, we're going to start a counseling program. And it's not for us to judge. It's for us hmm. to work with people and to see what it is that they need and to help them and to stop being part of the women's liberation movement that says that men who are, and all of that, but to say... That says that, that you have no business staying with a man who's like that and zero tolerance for that kind of behavior. That's right. You said, we, we can't do that. Right. And another experience I had that also taught me that. So, but it was all from, nothing is, just comes from your head. Everything comes from learning, if you're open to learning. Is I remember going to Railway State Prison in New Jersey, where they had at the time a sex offenders program. Now, all of mm. the convicted offenders, all of the ones I met were men, um, of all ages and types, uh, weren't, if they participated in the program, weren't getting reduced time. So there was no incentive related to reduced time. And I took my whole battered women's shelter program staff down there and all the volunteers down there to meet with these rapists. Hmm. And there were four of them that talked to us. And before we went in, we sat together and we talked about what we imagined these men were like. And then when we went in and we saw what they looked like, we all looked at each other as like, he's a rapist, he's a rapist. They looked like ordinary human beings and just, and, and the, the people who were raped, one was the person's mother-in-law, another one was an, a 68-year-old lady. It, I mean, it was just, it wasn't some voluptuous Marilyn Monroe cutout or something like that. Right. Um, it wasn't like that at all. And um, at the end of it, when we left there, we talked among ourselves and we said, these people have a sickness and that they have a pathology and they have to bear the consequences of their actions. They have to suffer the consequences of their actions, but at the same time, they need help to get sorted so that that doesn't keep happening. And I think that the same was true here with the domestic violence. The people had um, power issues, control issues, rage issues, and we had to help them because otherwise, even if these women left, someone else would take their place and it would continue to happen. So, But so coming back got, to, to <laughs> Feeding America. Well, I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta take a breath here and, and process. I, I like to sometimes ask people what their superpower is. And you seem to have uh, an emotional intelligence, an EQ that's off the charts, right? Really? The, the, yes. I mean, just, uh, I'm no psychologist, but the, the fact that as a mid-level staffer, you can decide uh, based on the emotional impact that you know uh, an anti-Mandela march from the Jewish community will have, you decide you have to do something way above your pay grade and organize a meeting in Geneva between Jewish leaders and, and Nelson Mandela. Uh, the fact that you devise uh, a program of leverage working with battered women to figure out how to get their abusers into counseling. I mean, that's not the sort of thing that most of us with, with average emotional faculties can really leap to. But it's also I mean, just the impact emotionally of hearing these stories is rough. What do you do with the emotion that you take in from the people who you're dealing with and helping? How do you continue to function while dealing in these really deep and treacherous emotional waters day in, day out? Work harder. Be crazy. Climb mountains. I've climbed most mountains in the world. I just... Oh, literally. Literally. I mean, you name them, I've been there. I haven't climbed Everest, but I've climbed the Himalayas, the highest mountain in India, the, the, the Indian, as they call them, the Himalayas. I 
do physical exercise and movement and so on and get out there and stretch, push my body as much as I can. Um, I think I'd um, talk to people. I'd sometimes I make people crazy because I've got a lot of energy. <laughs> and um, try and keep doing better and think what else I can do. And is that enough? Or, okay, that was good, but now it's done. Now what are you going to do? And how can you use yourself as a... I've always seen myself as an instrument of the good. And so I, I remember early on um, in one of my first national jobs going to the White House. And it was quite an experience. I took <laughs> the paper towels, I admit it now, from the bathroom <laughs> because it had they the had White the House written on it. Right? Oh my goodness, what a thought. And, um, but then I thought, well, yeah, but you're here because you're in this role. So your job is not to say how important you are. Your role is to, well, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to use this to advance? And the more I could do that, the more, it's almost as if it kept coming back to why I was brought on this earth or why mm. I was here, that I needed to do these things. So to, to blow off steam, you climb mountains and other things like that. Uh, do you rest? Do your loved ones worry about you? Rest. As, um, as, as hard as you work and as much as you put into not only your work, but then dealing with the effects of your work... How do you... In some ways, yes. I mean, we've got a little community garden in D.C., although that's a oh. hell of a lot of work. <laughs> oh, gosh, we grew, we grew lots of tomatoes. I mean, this tiny little plot, because it's just two, two blocks from my downtown Washington, D.C. apartment. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and we've taken over a little island nearby for flowers for the community where we grow the flowers there and all of that. I belong to a book club. Mm. It's a wonderful book club. Um, and um, every now and then, I can be utterly catatonic and watch some show. And do what show? Some of those binge shows that we all watch. Um, Orange is the New Black. Oh, okay. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, what's that Kevin Spacey show that's just awful about DC? Oh, yes. You know which uh, one House I mean? of Cards. House of Cards. Yes. Um, there's one called uh, Peaky something or other about Irish mobsters in <laughs> the 1920s. Okay. Something that's really a, a, a thriller, you know, that's, that's, that's a murder mystery or thriller or, or insane <laughs> behavior. Where I can totally get lost in that yeah. story. Yeah, things, okay. things like that. But friends, we, and I love doing dinner parties. Mm. But again, it's, it's, it's a lot of work because I cook everything from scratch, never oh. bring in anything. <laughs> you come to my house for dinner, you'll see. Wow. And we always You insist on doing it all yourself. Yeah, well now I've persuaded my husband to help with that. <laughs> and he's pretty now he's making his own meals and we all, I always do one dish that I've never done before. Hmm. There's something about being on the edge where it could totally flop or it could succeed. You've got to try that. So for Thanksgiving we did it again. So yes, so but but it's about bringing people together. And um, in January on January 20th, on Saturday, January 20th, we'll have a lot of people at our house who would have been at the Women's March that day mm. um, after the Peace Ball on Thursday night. And it will be people talking about what's happening in Washington and the future and so on. But I would be remiss if I didn't come to Feeding America. Yes, I was going to come back to that. If there's one thing, and I'll ask this to close, if there's one thing that you could ask people to do in the coming year. Some people do resolutions. I personally don't do resolutions. Um, but I have several things that I try to do better at uh, in a given year. One thing that would help Feeding America uh, improve the lives of, of others and people's communities, what would you encourage people to do if they're going to do one thing different in 2017? So the one thing I'd say is don't feel guilty. Whatever you do, don't feel guilty. Hmm. Lean, because guilt only works so much, and then at some point there's a reaction to the guilt and there's a resentment towards guilt. Hmm. You know, I think that, um, so, so guilt's useful for the moment, but it's sort of like, uh, okay, now I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to deprive myself, or now my, new, you know, New Year's resolution. And I think that the so best... So guilt is philanthropic junk food. In some ways, guilt is philanthropic <laughs> junk food, beautifully put. Um, I would say lean into yourself. If you're a person who likes to volunteer and you think you'd rather like that, just call your local food bank. You'd be amazed at how easy it is to volunteer. If you think you should give a little more, instead of just giving a $25 gift or a $250 or $25,000 gift, 
Give it every month mm. so that it becomes part of your way of life that you do that. Um, get to know somebody. When you walk past somebody on the street who puts their hand out or who says good evening or good morning and you don't want to say hello because you know the next thing they're going to say is can you spare a dime or can you spare a nickel? Nowadays they say can you spare a dollar? Um, <laughs> don't turn your face away. Say good morning, whether you're going to give that dollar or not. Humanize mm. the person that you're seeing. See them through new eyes. And remember that sometimes people are in that situation because of a whole set of circumstances that you have no idea about. So don't be so judgmental. Just as you don't want other people to judge you when things don't go so well for you, don't be ashamed of that, but don't be ashamed for other people either. Know that everybody is in the situation they are because of a confluence of situations and maybe a little something you do will make a difference. My thanks to Diana Aviv, CEO of Feeding America. Such valuable insights into how to show love to those in need, not just in this season, but every day. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on iTunes, Apple's podcast app, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope. Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, I tackle the biggest business and economic issues of the week with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. And don't miss next week's New Year's podcast. Rory O'Malley is King George III in the Broadway production of Hamilton. He's been doing that since the spring when most of the original cast was still in. He was Tony nominated for Book of Mormon, and he's got insight on making it on whatever your life's big stage might be. Share this, please. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. I'm John Fort. That's J O N. F-O-R-T-T. That's how you can find me on all those platforms. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.